Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. We're going to spend uh, all morning there. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one of these on the floor around you. And it's page 387 in this Bible. And again, just a reminder, if you don't have a Bible at home or you don't have one that you can understand, please take this one with you. It's our gift to you. We want you to be reading along with us as we go through this series. Uh, Many of you remember the story from January 15th, 2009. It started out like... Any other morning for Captain Chelsea Sullenberger and First Officer Jeffrey Skiles. They were scheduled to pilot U.S. Airways Flight 1549 from uh, LaGuardia Airport in New York City to Charlotte, North Carolina. It's a trip that Captain Sullenberger, or Sully, as his friends knew him, had done literally thousands of times. But this flight would be different. As three minutes in and 3,000 feet up in the air, the plane ran into a large flock of Canada geese who some of whom were drawn into the engine, disabling both engines of the plane. With less than four minutes until the plane hit the ground and no available runways within striking distance, Sully had to think fast about what to do with his Airbus A320 and the 155 people on board. He said, the only place in the whole metropolitan area of New York, he later wrote, one of the most densely populated places on the planet that you could even attempt to land a large, fast jet airliner was the Hudson River. It's long enough, wide enough, and smooth enough that we could attempt it. Well, you probably remember how this story ends. The plane did land in the river. All 155 people were saved. Captain Sullenberger was hailed as a hero. He even received the Master's Medal from the Guild of Air Pilots and Air Navigators. He received the key to the city of New York, and he was named Grand Marshal of the Tournament of Roses Parade that year. Uh, It was called by aviation experts the most successful ditching in history. I think that's a good thing, right? If you're going to ditch a plane, you want it to be the most successful one. Well, sometime after that incident, this is what struck me. Sometime after that incident, Newsweek magazine ran an interview with Captain Sullenberger, and they asked this question. Were you confident that you would not die? I think it's a pretty straightforward question, but I want you to hear what he said. He said this. He said, even though this was an unanticipated event for which we had never specifically trained, I was confident that I could quickly synthesize a lifetime of training and experience adapted in a new way to solve a problem I had never seen before. So that's what I did. How would you like to be able to do that, to take a lifetime of training and experience and and adapt it to solve a new problem in a new way? Because let me ask you something. How often does life hand you an unanticipated event for which you were never trained? In in other words, does life ever throw you a curveball? Well, yeah, I think we could all say that we've experienced that, right? I mean, for you, maybe it's a, it's a loss. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one, the loss of a friend, uh, even the loss of a job, the loss of a marriage, something in your life that you love dearly is lost. Uh, maybe it's bad news. It's a health problem. It's a financial problem, a business deal gone bad, or, or, or some world event even that has a profound impact on you. Uh, maybe it's a damaged relationship with a, a child, a parent, or a spouse, When when something like that happens, you get this unexpected, unanticipated life event that you've never been able to train for. You're forced to reevaluate everything that you think you know about God, about faith, and about the world. It's important that you can, like Sully did, that you can lean on a lifetime of training and experience to help you understand and process what's going on with your life. And that's why we're doing this series. Uh, We're starting today, the series called The Father Is. We're going to look at eight attributes of God over the next eight weeks We're going to look at eight things that we can know for sure about God, simple truths that we can engrave on our hearts so they will be easily accessible when we need them. So that even when we're handed 
an event which we were never trained for, which we never anticipated, that we'll be able to draw on the things that we know on our training and experience to help solve that problem. You know, the Bible tells us that God is beyond our understanding, but Ephesians 1.17 has a promise, and the promise is that we can know him better. And one way that we can know him better is to study his attributes or the things that are true about God. And so the attribute I want to look at today comes from Well, actually, it comes from a lot of places in Scripture, but uh, where I want to focus is on Psalm 34, and specifically Psalm 34, 8, which if you have your Bibles open there, it says this, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. So the first attribute of God then is this, God is good. God is good. And if you grew up in a church where there was a call and response, you probably uh, may be used to saying this, even if it's by rote, you know, the, the worship leader would say, God is good. And you would say, all the time. And then he'd say, all the time, God is good, right? And you would say that and you've become so trained to say that, that you can say it even when you don't believe it. You know, we can say that in times, even when we're not sure that we believed it. And that's okay, I think. I mean, I think that's okay. I mean, sometimes we have to say things out of discipline to help get our hearts in the right place. But when we're not sure we believe that, isn't what we're really saying is, I don't feel your goodness in my life right now. And how often do we, even the most devout among us, go through life in in a difficult experience, difficult circumstances and go, God, I don't feel, I know you're good, but I don't feel your goodness in my life right now. See, I think it's easy to admit that God is good in the abstract but sometimes it's hard to see the reality of what that means. It's, it's pretty obvious that God is good when things are good. But when things are not going well for us, when we really need God's goodness in our lives, it becomes harder, doesn't it? I mean, how are you supposed to hang on that truth when you're barely hanging on? Well, honestly, I think the only way through this problem is theological. That we've got to wrestle with what it means for God to be good. Uh, We have to wrestle with what the psalmist meant when he said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Because the psalmist, the the person who wrote this, honestly was no stranger to suffering himself. But he was able to see his way through the suffering and declare for generations later to see and read and use that God is good. And so to grasp that truth, I think it's important that we understand that there are some different dimensions to God being good. In fact, I see three, there may be more than that, but there are three dimensions that I've put in your notes for you to the word good, Uh, three different ways that we can say God is good. And they all start with a P and that's not really intentional. This isn't a Baptist sermon. So, uh, but, but the first one is this goodness is a property of God. It's a, it's a property of God. It's a descriptor. It's an attribute, right? It's something that we can say is true about God saying that God is good, though, is a little bit like saying grass is green, that that it's one dimension, it's one description. And I can tell you that grass is green, but so are leaves, and so are Christmas trees, and so are gummy bears, but not very good gummy bears. Those aren't the good ones. You know, you all know the gummy bear hierarchy, right? It's red, orange, white, then licking your own sweat, then yellow, (laughs) then actual grass, and then green. So if you want to give me gummy bears, red and orange, that's the way to go, right? So, so there's a lot of things that are green. That's what I'm trying to say. There's a lot of things that are green. And so saying that, that a grass is green doesn't give it a full description. Saying that God is good is not a full description. But when we say that grass is one of several species of plants with long, skinny, flexible blade-like leaves used as ground covers for lawns, then we start to get somewhere, right? We start to understand more what grass is. In the same way, to say God is good as a description really doesn't do him justice, So I think we need to go beyond that to really understand God's goodness. So let's look at Mark 10 and see what Jesus had to say 
about this subject. As Jesus started on his way, Mark 10, 17 says, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. So so Jesus says that only God is good and God is only good. Right? And it's in this context that we can see the second way that we can describe God's goodness, that goodness is a product of God. Goodness is a product of God. In other words, God can only produce goodness. I'm going to show you what I mean by this. You don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you how the story goes. In Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 1 says that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's Genesis 1.1. It's the first Bible verse I ever memorized, by the way. It's a pretty easy one. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Um, Genesis says that he created light and he separated it from the darkness. And then he created the sky and the land and the plants and the trees and the sun and the moon and creatures of the sea and sky and land. And all that God created, he declared it was good. God said it was good. God and God alone gets to make that declaration of what is good because it was created for him. It's like this. Let's say you leave here today and you go to lunch and there's no one else around, no one else gets to choose, you get to choose, and so you get to go wherever you want. Or it's Father's Day, and Dad, you get to decide where you're going for lunch, right? And so you decide, uh, you're not subject to the whims of the rest of the people in your household. Uh, and so you decide, I'm gonna go get some pizza. I'm gonna go to Blaze Pizza over here, and I'm gonna create my own pie, right? And so you create your own pie, and you can put on it whatever you want. You can put uh, chicken and mushrooms and onions and artichoke hearts. Maybe that's what you like. Uh, gorgonzola cheese, stuff that your kids won't eat, Right? You put it on there and I don't know, whatever you want. You take that first bite and the cheese kind of melts down your chin, you know, and the flavors hit your tongue and it starts to like explode in your mouth and you swallow that first bite of pizza and you think, mmm, this is good. This is good. Now at that point, you get to declare that it's good, right? You get to declare whether it's good or not. It's your lunch. You put it together. You designed it. It's only there for you. So only you can decide whether it's good or not. If the guy behind the counter says that pizza's not going to be any good, it doesn't matter what he thinks. He doesn't get a say. If your kids look at it and go, ooh, that's gross. It doesn't matter what they think. They don't get a say. You had it created for your purposes and you get to declare that it's good. Have I lost you now? Everybody's thinking about pizza, aren't you? Yeah, sorry. God gets to declare what is good because it's made for his purpose. Everything was made for him and by him. And because it all met his purposes, it's all declared good. God can only create good things. Jesus, in another scene, when he's talking to the rich young ruler, was trying, he was trying to say, if you think I'm good, I must be from God. Because God alone is good and he can only produce good things. He's, he's making the point that anything that we think is good must find its source in God. I love pastor and author Tony Evans says it this way. He says, the goodness of God is the standard by which anything called good must be judged. In fact, he goes on to say, it doesn't matter how good something looks or how good something makes you feel. If it's not from God, it's not good. And see, this is why sin is so painful because sin masquerades as something good. It it looks good on the surface. On the outside, it looks like something that should be good. And that's why sometimes if you're not a Christian, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, sometimes you look at Christians, you go, why do you, why do you guys get so uptight about people's behavior? Like, what's the big deal? Why do Christians care how other people behave? 
I mean, if it looks good and it feels good, it must be good, right? So just do it. But the Bible tells us that that sin is crouching outside your door, that it desires to have you and that you must rule over it. Jesus talked about this. He, He said that we have a real enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Revelation says that the enemy leads the whole earth astray. That's you and me, guys. Every one of us are led astray by the enemy. And sometimes when bad things happen, we can make the mistake of blaming those things on God when really it's our enemy who's come to kill, steal, and destroy. I mean, the truth is that we live in a contaminated world. The world we live in is dirty. It's still the same world God created, but it's been corrupted by the evil one. And some of that rubs off on us. And because of the effects of sin, even the children of a very good God who wants very good things for us, we we suffer sometimes. So we get cancer. We have children die. We have conflict with family and friends. People pick up guns and knives and bombs and fists and they use them on people who don't deserve it for all the wrong reasons. But that's not from God. And sometimes it's our own sin that causes the problems. In fact, some people in this room right now are not sensing the goodness of God because we need to repent of our sin. Like we've got a pattern in our life that's causing the problems that we're experiencing. The creation was completely good when it came from God. It's only man and our sin that has contaminated the world. Psalm 119 says, you are good, speaking to God, you are good and what you do is good. So goodness is a property of God. Goodness is a product of God. And so far, I think most of us can acknowledge that those two things are true. I mean, even when things, there are things that have gone wrong in our lives, we're, we're struggling to understand something. If we, we know in our head, at least, that God is good, that God has good in him, that he produces good things. But where we often have a hard time, I think, in our hearts uh, in knowing and understanding uh, where God is good is in what he provides for us and how he provides. So the third way that we can say that God is good is to say goodness is a provision of God. Goodness is a provision of God. It is the provision of God. It's understanding how well and how much God loves to provide for his children. The Bible says, if you as a sinful father can give good gifts to your children, how much more does our heavenly father want to give good gifts to his children? there's, There's something experiential about the goodness of God. It's something we experience uh, through his actions, through his gifts, through his provision. We see goodness in God's grace. Grace is, uh, means that God gives his absolute best to us even when we deserve his worst. We see it in his mercy, which means he promises to take away our misery. We see it in his truth. God is the only one we can trust to tell it like it is in love. We see it even in his discipline, how God rebukes his children and corrects us when we stray uh, from the life he has for us. You know, my uh, wife and I, we, whenever we set dinner on the table, we give our kids some sort of vegetable to eat, uh, which makes us really bad parents, by the way. <laughs> I just want you to know. Uh, even when they don't like it, our kids are going to eat vegetables with their lunch and dinner. Why? Because we're bad parents? Well, maybe. Uh, if you ask them, maybe. But, but it's, it's because not everything that is good seems good at the moment. Right? We, we know that vegetables help make you healthy and strong. And so even if it's unpleasant in the moment, a good parent will make you choke those puppies down, right? Because you need to have those vegetables in your body. Romans 8.28 says the same thing about God, that we know that God works for the good of those in all things. God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
Now, here's what I want you to see. It, it doesn't say that all things are good. There's no promise in the Bible that what you're going through, that you're suffering, the things that you're dealing with right now, that that's a good thing, that that came from God. There's nothing in scripture that says that. But what it says that all things, in all things, God works in all things, good things, bad things, neutral things. God works for the good of those who love him. And some of you are here today and you're in a broken place. And maybe what you need to hear is that that God has good intentions for you that no matter how far you wander, that the goodness of God means that you can fall into his arms and he will welcome you back. If you're a Christian, you can be sure that even in the difficult times, you have that assurance that God is working for your good. I wanna show you in Psalm 34 where it says the same thing. Psalm 34, 19 says that the righteous person may have many troubles, even with a good God, all right, who's completely sovereign over everything. Scripture warns us his people will face suffering. But check out the second part of this verse. But the, the Lord delivers him from them all. And God is, is shown good from our experience. He's, he's never faced a problem he couldn't solve. He's never been surprised. He's never had to choose the lesser of two evils. Like God has never and will never and can never do anything that is less than completely good. He, he can't be less than good. He can't produce something less than good. He can't provide something for us that's less than good. And what this means for you, if you're a Christian, what this means is that your circumstances don't get the last word. Your, your tough situation, your broken relationship, whatever it is, even death, death cannot have the final say in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can know, Paul says, we know, you can know, even if you can't see, you can know, even if you don't know when, you can know that God is going to use that for your good. He says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, you don't have that assurance if you're not a follower of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you may experience some of God's blessing. I mean, Matthew 5 says he causes sun to rise on the evil and good and rain, uh, on, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous but God wants you to experience all of his blessing. He's being patient with you. He's waiting for you to make a decision. His desire is for you to find your way back to him and experience the fullness of his goodness. So what's keeping you? If you're here and you're not a Christian, you never made that decision to follow Christ, what's holding you back? Let's talk about that, you and me. Let's talk about that after the service, okay? Because God has given the followers of Jesus the ability to enjoy his goodness in the ways the rest of the world can't appreciate. Jesus himself said that the knowledge of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but not to them. And if you grew up around church or around some Christians, you may have developed a warped view that once people become Christians, they just kind of, you know, drag themselves through life. Like, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. And honestly, Christians, we're part of the problem. We can be the problem sometimes. How often do we go through our days angry at the world? We're angry at the stupid stuff people say online, angry at what people believe or how they act. We're upset that not everybody is like us because if they were just like us, if everybody was just like me, the world would be so great, wouldn't it? Some of us go through life with permanent scowl on our face and it can create this perception that becoming a Christian means that you grow boring or grumpy or mean. But nothing could be further from the truth. 
as followers of Jesus, we should be the most joyful people on the planet. Because we know we have a God who loves us so much that while we were still sinners, he sent his only son, Jesus, to come to earth to die for us. And because of that, because of that, we should be able to enjoy life more than anybody else. Like we we should enjoy nature more. We should enjoy good food more. We should laugh harder. We should love longer. We should live fuller. We should enjoy all of God's creation more than anyone else. Why? Because we know the creator. We have a relationship with him. You know, I read this story once of a pastor from Los Angeles who had the opportunity to appear in a small speaking role in a Hollywood movie. And because he was in that movie, even for a few seconds, it was only a few seconds on screen, but because he was in there, he got the chance to go to the, the premiere, the Hollywood premiere, the, the gala that they have around that. And, and so he was there in his black tie and tails, and he watched the movie with all these people, some famous, some not so famous, but in their black ties and tails and their, their evening gowns, and they were sitting all around him. And when the film was over, he started to get up, but something curious happened. He noticed that even though he started to get up, nobody else was getting up that everybody in this Hollywood audience stayed in their seats and had a profound effect on him. Because here's what happened. Once the credits started rolling, people sat in their seats and applauded for the credits. They started cheering for the stars and then the lesser stars and then the no-names like himself. And they hooted and hollered for the writers and the cinematographers and the sound effects people and the key grip and the best boy and all those roles that we don't even know what they mean, you know, and Every person in that theater stayed until the very last name rolled up off the screen. And the people in that room appreciated that movie more than anyone else. Why? Because they knew who made it. They understood the work that had gone into making that movie and how much love and how much effort went into it. See, the issue is not whether or not we enjoy the good things from God. The issue is how we enjoy God's goodness. We should enjoy God's goodness by thanking him constantly. We need to be thankful for his goodness and express gratitude for his goodness. I mean, too often we're like the ungrateful children who ask their parents for 10 Christmas presents and then we cry when we only get nine. We accept that, you know, good is just the way things are supposed to be instead of admitting that all good and perfect gifts come from above. We tend to focus on the blessing we're missing instead of the ones we have. You know, as Christians, when we enjoy a great meal, we shouldn't just say that meal was great. We should say, God is great for giving us that great food. When we see a a beautiful sunrise or sunset, we need to give credit to God for it. You know, he didn't have to make trees or flowers beautiful, but he did so we could enjoy him. Thank him for that. He didn't have to make birds sound lovely, but he did. Thanks be to God. As we wrap up today, I just want to point back to where we started in Psalm 34. I think it gives us great instruction for how we can respond to the goodness of God. Psalm 34, one says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. You know, we may never understand why we face certain hardships in our lives, but we can be confident just as grass is green that God is good and we should worship him for that and if we can train ourselves to remember that train ourselves to think about the goodness that God brings us then when the engines go out and the plane starts headed down well we'll know exactly what to do would you pray with me heavenly father I thank you for your goodness 
And I thank you for everything that means in our lives, that you are only good and that only you are good. I thank you that you produce good things, you make good things, that you give us good gifts. Lord, I thank you uh, for the times when I see things and I don't even acknowledge you, but I can know that you're behind every good thing in my life. So I thank you for what you've given me. Lord, help us this week, even as we go on our way, help us to remember that the good things come from you and help us to stop and give you thanks uh, where thanks is deserved. Lord, we come to you now in a time of worship. We thank you for all the good things in our lives. We praise you in Jesus' name.